Hey everyone, I'm Thanos Davelis, and welcome back to The Greek Current, a podcast by the Hellenic American Leadership Council and Kathy Merini, where we highlight the top stories of the day every afternoon with analysis from guest experts, policymakers, journalists, and health staff. The international community is working to avert an oil spill in the Red Sea that risks becoming the worst natural disaster ever seen in the broader region, threatens global shipping, and could trigger a new wave of migration. An oil tanker off the coast of Yemen has been deteriorating by the month since it was abandoned in 2017. A spill would be four times bigger than the historic Exxon Valdez disaster in the Gulf of Alaska in 1989. This is all taking place amid the backdrop of Yemen's civil war. Nicolas Katsimbras joins the Greek Current to look at the international efforts to prevent a major environmental disaster in the Red Sea and explain why Greece must be present in any efforts to resolve this crisis. Nicolas Katsimbras is a lecturer in Columbia University's Negotiation and Conflict Resolution Program, an international affairs consultant, and a veteran officer of the Hellenic Navy. Nicola, welcome back on The Greek Current. Thank you. Great always to be here. Nicola, while the world's attention is on Ukraine, the Red Sea is facing the risk of a major environmental disaster. Is the Safar oil tanker a ticking time bomb for the region? Absolutely. This is something that the international community, the United Nations, the International Maritime Organization, the different humanitarian organizations have been really flagging as a potential time bomb for many years. And it's interesting that international media have been highlighting this, but in Greece specifically, I don't think the media have been picking up on the magnitude of this threat. And this is something that now it's picking up momentum. And it's very timely for Greece to be discussing this, especially given the repercussions for Greece and its maritime sector. So overall, the main point is that everyone who's an expert in the area says that the disaster is imminent. We have no idea how much time this ship is giving us. Something might take place tomorrow or we might have another two months. We have no idea. But at this specific point, this is the closest we have ever come to take action against a potential disaster. And this is what we'll be discussing today. This is all taking place amid the backdrop of Yemen's civil war. How is this civil war complicating the situation? So the rebels, the Houthis, who are extremist forces trying to overthrow the government for the past several years, they took control of this vessel back in 2015. And this became a bargaining chip between the different sides of the conflict. So what we have here essentially is this major asset, especially for the Houthis and also the government as well, in terms of who is controlling what is inside the product, the crude oil of Safar. And this major sticking point has prevented anything from going forward for a really long time. Now, the challenge that we have is this specific vessel is really old, meaning this was constructed back in the 70s. So we have a ship that's already old, and it has been used as a floating platform for offloading, essentially, oil that's coming from other vessels into the mainland since the late 80s. So it's a ship that has been turned into a floating storage unit, constantly emerged in water for five decades, essentially. And the demands for maintaining such a vessel are huge. So imagine what's going on over the past five years that there has been zero maintenance. The fact that there has been zero maintenance is the fact that this has been left completely stuck, abandoned by the different sides of the conflict, because the Houthis don't even have the capacity to really maintain such a complex machinery. So the civil war has been pivotal in preventing any political solution taking place. And at the same time, you have all the projections of the international community and the environmentalists who are really demonstrating exactly how this will go down. So the interesting thing is, since the civil war has attracted, brought in also external actors like the Saudi Arabia and the UAE, they themselves, those external players, 
will also be impacted, especially Saudi Arabia, from this imminent threat. So now, since we get closer to a solution, we see that those actors are understanding how this can backfire against them as well. So that's why the civil war complexities, both internally and externally, are affecting it. The only way to move forward with a solution is not just for the parties of the civil war to agree, but also the greater ecosystem of actors who have intervened in the civil war. What are the risks for countries in the region? And I want to look at both the environmental and the economic impact if the Safar Tinker issue isn't resolved. There are different organizations that have modeled exactly the currents in the area and how a potential spill, depending on the weather conditions, the season, the prevailing wind, etc., how it could spread. Now, apart from the specifics, everyone pretty much agrees that the leak would definitely spread throughout the southern part of the Red Sea, cover definitely all of the coast of Yemen, and it will start expanding to impact also communities in the nearby area. So you have all of the countries that are also on both sides of the Red Sea. You have Saudi Arabia, you have Eritrea, you have Djibouti, Somalia, the Horn of Africa. And it's important to keep in mind that all of those countries, the whole area, has already major humanitarian challenges to deal with. So the challenge that we see going forward is, one, there will be the ports that will have to be shut down, and this will deprive millions of people from humanitarian aid. Yemen is the biggest humanitarian disaster of our time, and we cannot afford to have uh, humanitarian aid not being able to be delivered to Yemen, but also the Horn of Africa will be impacted immensely, and it's already in need of assistance anyway. So you cannot really block those ports in the near future for any reason. Now, on top of it, we have this other complexity which is interesting. The water supply would be affected because, especially for Yemen, a big part of the water supply comes from uh, desalination plants and an oil spill would completely take them offline. So there's a wide impact factor for a major spill And specifically, there was a communication while I was writing the article with the United Nations Secretary General and Special Coordinator for the region, David Gressley, who confirmed that a major spill would disrupt the vital shipping in the southern end of the Red Sea. And the environmental impact would really be immense, which will be potentially, he didn't confirm that, but it's a safe assessment to say that it would start perhaps impacting the migration flows up north from the area. And to remind our listeners, a spill would be four times bigger than the historic Exxon Valdez disaster that took place in the Gulf of Alaska in 1989. Yeah, absolutely. So we have inside the vessel right now, there are more than one million barrels of crude oil. Now, even to me, like, what does that mean? What is one million barrels? It's the equivalent of 87 pools that we use for the Luby Games, the standard of Olympic pool, the 50 meters. It's a huge number. And the Valdez, the equivalent was, I think, 250,000. So it's a major number. And I don't think we have seen anything like this, especially in the region and specifically in the Red Sea, that is a very, very sensitive ecosystem. And it's almost like a gulf. It's in a close body of water which makes it even much worse to be able to deal with it. This is not the open ocean that has other mitigating factors. Nicola, last year we saw the devastating impact that blocking the Suez Canal could have on the global economy when a tanker got stuck in the canal. Could this environmental crisis also potentially have similar global repercussions beyond the region? Yeah, absolutely. So the Red Sea has two talking points. Essentially, you have the Suez and the north, and you have the Bab al-Madab Strait in the south. 
Both those are crucial because the Red Sea Passage. It's responsible for 10% of global commercial traffic. Now, the losses around the same time last year for six days were in the billions of dollars. The daily losses were around 10 billions, I think. So the calculation right now is anything that prevents that traffic, and especially with closing the southern strait that controls the Red Sea navigation, would have similar potential implications. And the challenge is there's no projection for how long it would take. So we saw what happened last year only with six days of the Suez Strait being closed, blocked. We have no idea how long it would take for something of this magnitude, because also it depends on so many factors. But still, it's not worth risking such a major impact on so many things when this is a totally avoidable disaster. Undoubtedly, an environmental catastrophe will impact, as you mentioned earlier, the lives of those living around the Red Sea. Should Europe be concerned about the potential uprooting of communities, the displacement that could take place, and a new wave of migration that could be heading towards its borders? Yeah, so in order to answer this question, one of the first things I did, I I looked up the latest data from Frontex, which is this EU organization managing EU borders. And for January alone, there were around 16,000 migrants trying to cross over into Europe from the areas surrounding Yemen, areas that are expected to be potentially affected by a potential major spill. Now, there's no way to know exactly how big would the impact be on migration flows from potential spillover. The only thing that's certain is, depending on how big it is, there will be a proportional increase in the migratory flows up towards Europe. At the same time, we need to keep in mind that this is already a route, the Mediterranean route, because that's the route that has been receiving most of those migrants that is already pretty much burdened from other places like Libya and other areas in Northern Africa. So Europe doesn't have much of a you know, capacity to deal with more migratory flows toward its borders. And also we need to stress the humanitarian element, meaning already there are so many people drowning trying to cross over the Mediterranean. It's a very difficult passage. So there's so many factors at play. The only thing that's certain is that this is one of those preventable humanitarian disasters as well. The international community has taken steps to prevent this both environmental and humanitarian disaster. And about a week ago, there were reports that an agreement was reached for a UN-led effort to tackle the problem. Where are efforts to solve this today? So there are three main things we need to be aware. So the first one, the political aspect of the solution, the UN is managing that. So you have the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, which is the whole section of the UN that's in charge of Yemen right now, and they are in charge of the negotiations, they're trying to put forward uh, the political solution. Then you have the technical aspect of this, and the Dutch companies have taken the lead in being able to, first of all, assess what's going on, and then take the fuel out of the vessel into other vessels. And then I don't know what's going to happen afterwards with the actual tanker, but at this point, that's secondary. It's not the priority. The point is that the oil needs to be taken out. And the third part is the financial support for this operation. This operation is supposed to cost between 75 to maybe even $100 million, depending on the needs and how long it would take. So the main focus right now is, one, there has been a first agreement like that's very, you know, nothing is certain because politically, when you're discussing civil war, nothing is set in stone, of course. Everything is fluid. But there is a first initial agreement by the different stakeholders for this operation. The second thing that's extremely important, especially for this issue and for Greece as well, is that end of March, there's a conference of donors for different members of the U.N., 
to volunteer, come together, different member states, and pledge donations for this operation. And the reason why I was also interested in the background to how this piece came to being written, it has to do with Greece really needing to be present for something like this, given the interest that we have in the area, given how active our maritime sector is, and also protecting ourselves and our community and our society from the potential implications in the future from this catastrophe. Let's dig into that, Nicola, as we wrap up. Why does Greece need to be present in any effort to resolve this crisis? So apart from, you know, the migratory flow increases, the environmental aspects of this, Greece has been very, very active politically in the region over the past two years. We have been absent for a long time. And now over the past two years, we have started being much more present because at the end of the day, it is our backyard in many ways. Now, the one thing that we need to keep in mind, like Greece has this leading role in global shipping and maritime industry. So we need to be present in any kind of effort, especially when it's so close to us, that has to do with protecting the safe passage of major maritime straits like this one. So for me, this is a perfect opportunity specifically for the Greek authorities to collaborate with associations that are interested. For example, there's a ship owners association that could be part of this initiative. We need to be asserting our way into solutions in order to be relevant on a global level. Now, there are many dividends of being so involved in such international efforts. One of them also could be that when we'll be pursuing our bid as a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council three years from now, initiatives like this would have paved the way for us to be more relevant, have worked on the ground with other members of state, and increase our political relevance in the region. So we need to be more tactical when it comes to being present overseas. The last thing I will mention, I think this is important just to give credit also where credit is due. This whole initiative started from a Greek who is working in the field. So the number two guy of the Office of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs in Yemen is Greek, Mr. Petropoulos. And he's the first one who said, listen, this is what's going on. I don't see this picking up momentum in Greece. People don't know about this. Greece should be there. And that's how this whole initiative started. And that's where it ends up also. Like It's important to engage people like him in the field who know best what's happening on the ground and figure out how we can utilize this network of experts who are in, in international organizations and humanitarian organizations out there and actually are looking to make a difference for Greece as well. So this is something that we need to be discussing more because Greece is not as proactive in this area like other nations. Nicola, thanks for joining us on The Greek Current. Always great speaking with you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. In other news, Washington-based Voice of America and Germany's state-owned Deutsche Welle broadcaster said they'll appeal a threatened ban in Turkey for refusing to apply for online licenses that could give the Turkish government influence over news content. Turkey's media watchdog on Monday gave VOA, Deutsche Welle, and France's Euronews 72 hours to apply for licenses or be shut down. President Erdogan's government has strengthened laws governing social media to allow it to supervise online broadcasts. International news outlets and social media sites have increasingly found themselves caught up in the government's effort to curb free speech as they have become a haven for opposition voices. Finally, Greece's government said it has plans to receive additional natural gas to avert a disruption of supply amid tensions in Ukraine. Western nations on Tuesday punished Russia with new sanctions and threatened to go further if Moscow launched an all-out invasion of Ukraine. In perhaps the most significant measure announced on Tuesday, Germany halted certification of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, owned by Russian state-owned gas giant Gazprom, a move likely to raise gas prices in Europe. 
Greece imports 40% of its gas from Russia and also has contracts with Azerbaijan and Algeria. Government spokesman Yanis Ekonomou said Greece will try to get as much gas as it can via a pipeline which runs from Azerbaijan to Italy. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.